0: Welcome to ACC Nation. That's Will, and our special guest is Chris Coleman of Tech Sideline, who joins us. It's been a while, uh, Chris, since you've been with us, and uh, so we may have some catching up to do. You know, some things may have changed uh, since the last time that we spoke to you. <laughs> we'll start off with football. How about that?
1: Yeah, um, I think everybody went into the season knowing that it was possible uh but then you beat North Carolina in the first game of the season and you're like oh my gosh we just beat a top 10 team you know we're good last year was just covid and a couple issues and that's it we're back right and then uh not so much it was kind of a a roller coaster ride after that i, I would say but you know I, I don't think anybody was necessarily surprised with the result you know uh hoping for something different uh Nobody wants to spend $8.75 million to buy out a coach and hire a new one, you know. But at some point, you've got to move forward with uh, some confidence from the fan base. And that, that's that's what was really going to drop next year. Um, not that they went into the season extremely yeah. confident, but uh, if, if it had gone on for another year, then, Oof. you know, you, yeah, it, it, the fan base couldn't have taken it.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, I think I can speak for all three of us that we're all three willing to be guinea pigs and step up um just to experience the 8.75 million buyout and you know kind of suffer through that so uh we're all willing to see what happens
1: you know you you always wonder like back in the day how many people would have gotten into football coaching if they knew what it was going to blow up into as far as the money aspect of it yeah I mean, uh, seriously, it's, 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 it's actually ridiculous, the amount of money that gets paid for buyouts. But at the same time, coaches have all the power in the hiring process. These days, fan bases want to be good so bad. And, you know, if somebody else gives you a better offer than another school, if somebody else is willing to put that buyout money up there and it's hard to walk away from, you know, so as long as the coaches have that power, then, and as long as alums are willing to to pay to come to, you know to make donations and pay the buyout you know it's it's one thing it's one thing to pay it have to pay it out of your school coffers so to speak it, it's another one when somebody else is going to pay it for you it, you know makes it a lot easier to uh to hire and fire coaches and, and things like that but uh hopefully uh hopefully better days are ahead and you don't have to experience that for a long time because the last time Virginia Tech really fired a football coach was the 70s. Um, you know, Bill, Bill Dooley was fired basically as athletic director in you know, 1986, but then he quit as head coach because he disputed that his contract said that his contract was only to be athletic director and head coach at the same time. It wasn't for one or the other, and uh, that was kind of an ugly mess. He went out suing Virginia Tech, actually, um, back in the day when head football coaches were, could also be athletic directors. It's just not not something. I think the last time that happened was Derek Dooley, at Louisiana Tech, his nephew. Um, so it must run in the Dooley family. Um, but it's just totally different feeling for Virginia Tech fans to experience the firing of a football coach. I had never experienced it. I was born in 1983. You know, so that happened before I was born. It's just fired plenty of basketball coaches throughout the years, but uh, but uh, never a football coach. So an odd feeling. Happy to have it in the rearview mirror. Hopefully, it doesn't have to happen again for a long, long time.
0: All right. So, um, just briefly, because I, I noticed this on your timeline on Twitter, talking about uh, you're talking about people who are raising the money, that uh, the Hokie Club is getting to close to 25,000 members. That drive for 25 uh, mm-hmm. campaign is is uh, very successful. So, mm-hmm. it's putting the school in a in a really good light and, and they'll be able to deal with these sort of situations much better down the road. At least it looks that way. So any quick thoughts on, on that?
1: Yeah. You know, that, uh, program was originally announced in December of 2016. I, I remember cause I was actually riding back to Blacksburg from Green Bay, Wisconsin. I had gone to a Packers game. That was a long drive. And I remember part of the way back <laughs> is when they announced it. So, you know, somebody else is driving, I'm sitting there reading about it on my phone and I'm like, wow, that's a, pretty auspicious goal but uh here we are they're they're very very close and you know i expect that they're going to capitalize on on recent coaching changes and, and everything and be able to set that mark and that'll be good combined with the football enhancement fund you know the difference between the two really is the football enhancement fund yes anybody can donate to it but it's really geared towards big donors like there's a lot of big donors that donated a lot of money to come up with the money for this new coaching staff, uh, whereas the, you, you know, so, so they're going for quantity and quality here. Uh, the quantity with the drive for 25, and the quality as far as the amount of money, uh, I guess, with with uh, the football enhancement funds. So it seems like they've definitely taken a step forward in the fundraising aspect of things. And you know, the funny thing is they were moving forward even when people were getting disenchanted with with Fuente. And, and they've come up with some creative ways to raise donations. Obviously starting the student ho- hokey club and counting them in it is, uh, is a big part. They get in a lot cheaper than your average fan, but you know, as any run fundraiser will tell you, you know, a $25 donation one day, once those kids go out and get jobs and things like that, and if they enjoyed their experience, their football experience at Virginia Tech, then that might be a $10,000 donation. That's right. One day. So it's important to get people's foot in the door early, and that's that's where Clemson had so much success so many years ago with IPTA. And I think Virginia Tech is uh, seem, they seem to be on the right right track there now.
0: Sounds like a, a good thing. Well, I'm going to let you take it from here. I know that you've got a lot of questions about the football program and basketball. We're going to touch on a little bit of everything. And I'll just say this before Will gets going. I I shot uh, Chris this message. We've we've had a lot of people who are very interested in your appearance on the show, and they want to hear everything there is to know about what's going on with the Hokies. So we're going to try to delve into that over the next few minutes. Will?
2: All right. So obviously we know Brent Pry is the new head coach of the Hokies, and I'm, it's not a sexy name per se on paper, but I would classify as a really smart, strong hire uh, to a program that has built itself on its defense for the past, you know, three decades. What is the kind of overall, as someone who's a thousand miles away from Blacksburg, what's the overall view of the hire? I think it's definitely viewed as a good cultural hire. Uh, I think, uh, I think they've made
1: a point very early in his tenure with all the social media stuff of, uh, having snowball fights on the drill field, uh, all the pictures of recruiting all the Virginia high schools, they want to make him seem as opposite of the previous staff as possible, even in certain ways where, like, uh Justin Fuente is gone. I actually think they're discrediting Fuente to a certain extent in an effort to, but that's in an effort to build pry up. And that's the smart move. You know, uh it's definitely somewhat of a marketing campaign. Not to say that, you know, it's fake and he's not doesn't believe in doing those things and everything like that, but it's the smart way to sell him to the fan base. And I think it's really interesting that for all those years, athletic directors were really focused on hiring the hot offensive coordinator whose offense had put up a ton of points and yards and things like that. Some of those guys worked out, some of them didn't, but a lot of them are like more style than substance. Uh, Like Chad Morris is probably the biggest example I can come up with that guy. I mean, a lot of Tech fans wanted him to be Virginia Tech's head coach. I mean, I remember running our poll back in late 2015, who should be Virginia Tech's next head coach? And he got a lot of votes in that. And I think five of the top six vote getters in that poll have since been fired or retired. And guys at the bottom of the list on that poll were guys like Kirby Smart, which is really interesting. Uh, So it, it just shows that it's really hard to identify the right head coach, particularly back then when everybody was trending towards the hot offensive name. So I think Brent Pry isn't really a sexy pick because he's been a defensive coordinator. And it was really only, in my opinion, this year where athletic directors really started turning on, I don't want to say turning on offensive coordinators, but they're a little more open-minded when it comes to what coaches they're going to select. Uh, Sometimes a defensive coach can be just as good a choice as an offensive coach if he's the right cultural fit. Um, So I, I think... I don't want to discredit Witt and say he didn't put a lot of thought into the Fuente hire, but I think the basic train of thought back then was, okay, you hire an offensive guru, you pair him with Bud Foster, and that's it. Everything Mm -hmm. else is just going to fall into place, but there's just so many other things you have to consider, and I think the fan base learned a lot. I know I learned a lot, and I'm sure Witt learned a lot during the Justin Fuente tenure that I I think put him in a better position to make this hire.
2: Yeah, you touched on one of the things that I even from from where I said, one of the things that I just felt never really worked with Fuente is culture. Mm -hmm. But the big difference I see already in in this new staff is uh, obviously aside from, you know, guys like J.C. Price, but and just as sports staff, they're bringing back a lot of alums as well. Um, uh, between the Pearson Prelo on is on the coaching staff, and obviously all the all the analysts in the, who are right. who are former VT alums as well. Yeah, and that's good to a point. You've got to be extremely careful because they just
1: fired a whole bunch of alums from that previous staff. Because Justin Fuente did the same thing at the end of his tenure. You know, he hired Justin Hamilton as defensive coordinator and safeties coach, and it just seemed like our safeties regressed year by year, and he, he, he. Jack Tyler is linebackers coach, and our, our linebacker play regressed year year over year. So, uh, I, I'm all for Virginia Tech graduates uh, getting hired by Virginia Tech, but I don't want to do it just for the sake of hiring Virginia Tech grads. You know, I I wanted them to be good fits, and I. I want, you know, Brett Brett Pry to be able to sit down with those guys and figure out that they're good coaches and hire them for their coaching qualities. Yes, it's a bonus that they're a Virginia Tech grad and that they understand the culture and and things like that, but it's not the end all be all. But I I do think he's got, he seems to have a good mix on the staff. I think, Uh, you know, he's got some young, somewhat unproven coaches but he's also got some a lot of really veteran guys in there like when you go hire joe rudolph away from wisconsin wow what a splash hire that is and that would have not not been possible with the assistant coach salary pool that was given to justin Fuente. that's all the football enhancement fund that has come into place over you know the last 12 to 13 months i would say so you know i think i think it's a it's a good mix um I think fans are on the overall happy with it. Um, I don't think, and, unless you just have a, a Brinks truck parked next to your athletic department, like in mm-hmm. Alabama or, or Georgia or Ohio State, it's, you're never going to be 100% satisfied with your coach's staff. You're always going to be able to nitpick something. But you know, on, on the whole, I feel like he did a good job.
2: Now, I admit, I don't know a whole lot about Tyler Bowen, who was named mm-hmm. the offensive coordinator. So what kind of scheme do, do you see them running with him this year?
1: Yeah, you know, he came up at Penn State when Joe Moorhead was the offensive coordinator there. Joe Moorhead went on to be head coach at Mississippi State, offensive coordinator at Oregon. And now I believe he's the head coach at Akron. And and I I think Moorhead was a really good offensive coordinator. Penn State's program has dropped since Moorhead left, to be honest with you. They have not been nearly as good offensively since he left. Uh, James Franklin has struggled to to replace him. And uh, I think... There's a, there will be a lot of influence from of Joe Moorhead on, on the staff. You know, Bowen spent a year as offensive coordinator at Fordham, and he also was Penn State's offensive coordinator for a ball game against Memphis. And you know, he's on the whole between those two jobs, he's a 58% run, 42% pass. That 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 that's how it breaks down. And I I think when you hire an offensive coordinator who used to coach at Penn state and he's a former offensive lineman and he's a, he's a tight ends coach. And then you hire Wisconsin's offensive line coach and you hire Stu Holt as running backs coach who had five, 1000 yard rushers in four seasons at Appalachian state. I think it becomes pretty obvious what's your bread and what you want your bread and butter to be like Virginia tech wants a strong running game. I, I think it's, I think Wisconsin, Penn state and Virginia tech, on paper should be similar programs with how they win football games. Um, And not to say that they all should be exactly the same, but uh, I think Virginia Tech needs to be a program where they are known for their physical play up front. Uh, They are known for for strong defense. They are known for a strong running game. I think that's the best way to win football games at Virginia Tech, because once you get to mid-October, you never know, the next Saturday might be 70 degrees and sunny. I've gone to a game on on October 1st in Blacksburg where it was like 30 degrees and the wind was blowing 30 miles an hour. You just, you never know what you're going to get from a weather standpoint. So you need to be able to run the football in in Blacksburg, in in my opinion. And and that's, I I think they want a balanced offense, but it's but also a run first offense. They want to, they want quarterbacks who can push the ball down the field, but uh, that are a deep threat, which ideally keep safeties out of the box, which helps the running game. So I I would describe it a little bit as a, maybe like the, uh, not necessarily from an X's and O's standpoint, and this is the type of plays we're going to be running, but from a philosophy standpoint, sort of like the Jim Druckenmiller offense at Virginia Tech back in the day. Druckenmiller was a first round pick at quarterback. He could really throw the football downfield with a great arm, but Virginia Tech also had a great offensive line and, and great running backs and but they really fed off of each other. That strong running game helped Druckenmiller. His strong arm helped keep safeties out of the box because they knew he could throw it 60 yards to complete passes 60 yards down the field. So just a really, really dangerous offense. And that's actually, that's my ideal offense for Virginia Tech. And I think that's the direction they want to go. Now, you know, wanting to go somewhere and being able to get there are two different things. But uh, the first thing you have to do is get the philosophy right. And I do think they've gotten the philosophy right.
2: So back to the staff for a second, and and I think in-state recruiting has got to be something that it feels like it's got to be key to, to the to the staff. And you know, obviously UVA is going uh, is also going under going under new coaching staff, but North Carolina has come in and be, over these last few years and taken pretty much anyone they they wanted out of the state. What's it going to take for Virginia Tech to really get a really firm uh, grasp in in-state recruiting again?
1: You know, I think they made a lot of uh, hires with good in-state ties. Uh, Fontel, Mines, uh, Pry himself has recruited Virginia for Penn State for for quite a while. He's very familiar with with, with the state of Virginia. So uh, I I think that they hired coaches who have good familiarity with the state of Virginia. And a guy like Derek Jones, who has the personality, I believe, to to recruit anywhere. You know, he's going to recruit on the peninsula for Virginia Tech. You've seen him in Richmond high schools. I believe he was down in Charlotte yesterday. So uh, early indications are they're going to lean heavily on him uh, as a recruiter. And I think that's a good decision. Uh, Now, they do have to be careful. Um, You know, I've done an analysis of of, of in-state recruiting recently. And, uh, you know, I think there are currently 31 players from the state of Virginia in the NFL. And 10 years ago, there were 52.
2: Um,
1: Meanwhile, in the state of North Carolina the number has gone up in the state of Maryland. The number has gone up in the state of South Carolina. The number has gone up. I don't think there's, I think there's as much physical talent in the state as there used to be, but, but I, I think I, I, it just doesn't seem like it's getting developed. I, I know some of the best coaches from the seven, five, seven have accepted out of state jobs. Uh, you know, the old, I forget where he coached in the seven, five, seven, but he's moved to to Georgia for more money and won state championships down there. And there's another coach, uh, coach Farabee, Again, I forget where he was in the seven-five-seven, but he's he's moved to Vance High School down in North Carolina, won state championships. Even the Blacksburg High School coach, he moved, I think, to North Carolina or Georgia and took a job. And Blacksburg was dominant with him. And without him this past year, they went 0-10. And uh, there, there just seems to be, I'm not saying there aren't good coaches left in the state of Virginia. I just think more seem to be leaving than coming. And I, I don't know that. There's quite the player development there used to be. I mean, when's the last time a really good quarterback came out of the 757? I mean, it it, it, it used to be, you know, your Brian Randall's your your Michael Vicks, uh, your Taj Boyd's, your Tyrod Taylor's, got guys like there were there were there were four and five star quarterbacks coming out of the 757 every year. There hasn't been one since Taj Boyd, and he was class of 2009. That is a long time ago. So. It's not quite what it was in state, in my opinion. So I don't think you can be out there just throwing out offers just to get in state players. I think you have to be selective. You have to show the high school coaches and the appropriate people that you care while also balancing out like who do I really want? You don't want to take this guy just because he goes to this high school or just because he's from this region, because that's what worked for Virginia tech 20 years ago. Um, You know, like, uh, I mean, I'm from Danville originally, you know, and David Wilson is from, is from Danville. And I I remember Tech signed Logan Thomas from Lynchburg and David Wilson from Danville in the same recruiting class, 2009. And nobody's come out of Danville since then. Hardly anybody's come out of Lynchburg since then. It's just, there are certain areas of the state that don't produce as much talent as they used to. So it's, it's important that Virginia Tech, yes, they need to focus on in-state recruiting and they're, and they're doing that, but. It has to come with the knowledge of who are the right players to take.
0: That's an excellent analysis of what's going on in the state of Virginia from the standpoint of uh, high school football. Um, I, I will say that I agree with you 100% on that because I, I've seen the same thing. It's It goes in cycles in Virginia. And when you have programs that aren't as committed uh, to to having program, you know, a uh, when you have schools that are not as committed to their programs as you find in other states, like North Carolina, as you point out, Georgia, et cetera, go to Texas sometime and watch their high oh, school football. Gosh. You know, yeah. That's just insane. Um, that's better than most uh, college football operations that I've seen. But the point is, <clears throat> it's so easy to suck off the, the, the great talent at coaching in the state of Virginia, and it disappears. So nothing is being developed, and I, I think that is yeah, a well, huge it's, point. It's you know you bring up Texas,
1: and I got an email several weeks ago from a guy whose son plays, uh, I believe, middle school football in Texas, and uh, this is one of, in one of the big football towns in Texas, and they play in a multi-million dollar stadium, mm-hmm. and uh, they have a they have a, they start playing you know in middle school in the seventh grade, and they have an a team a b team and a c team with 30 players on each team so that's 90 guys from the same middle school playing seventh grade football same thing in the eighth grade an a team a b team and a c grade 90 more eighth graders and then they're fed up to to the ninth grade like the high schools have a ninth grade team a jv team and then a varsity team right. and down to the middle school level they're already running the high school's playbook yep. i mean and the, the middle school coaches answer to the high school coaches in terms of player development and things like that. So it's just an organized effort down to the grassroots level. Mm-hmm. And uh they love their football in Texas. And I, and I you know, I wrote a couple of weeks ago that you know, if I happen to ever be a multi-millionaire one day and I can write a blank check to help Virginia Tech football, I don't think I think my money would best be spent not by giving that money to Virginia Tech, but by uh starting a system like that in the state of Virginia where coaches are extremely well compensated down to the middle school level and players get excellent development from a very early age. And they're just part of a system that really develops, not just talent, but the discipline it takes to harness your talent. And I think that's lacking in some areas of Virginia too. Uh, Not to compare, it's unfair to compare to Virginia to Texas, but it's, you know, but if, uh, I think, uh, and I, to be honest with you, I, I don't know that Texas, like, how do you explain the university of Texas, right there? They've got access to players who come out of that system and they're still not any good. So there's gotta be something missing there too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I think if I could come up with, uh, millions and millions of dollars, I, that would benefit something like that would benefit more than actually donated it to Virginia Tech.
0: Probably a good point there. I, I know that when I played football in Virginia, um, our athletic director, and you, you kind of touched on this, our athletic director had been there for eons. He was also the head football coach. He also yeah. ran the recreation department in the area. And yeah. therefore all the coaches for little league and, and on up were all under that umbrella. So you just I, had this constant feed of great I, players.
1: I, I remember, uh, my freshman year playing high school football it was the last game of the season. And, uh, We were playing at Alta Vista, I believe, and good school. we were waiting around and waiting around for the bus to get there and take us to the game. It never showed up. And so we had to call the ag teacher, who was also a school bus driver, to come pick us up and take us to the game. We got there like five minutes before kickoff, had to warm up really, really quickly and play in the cold rain without even really warming up. And as it turned out, the athletic director apparently just forgot to order us a bus. That's in the state of Virginia. Yeah. Do you think that would happen in Texas? That, that is
0: a can, familiar can you, story. Can, can you,
1: like, if that happened in the state of Texas or even in the state of Georgia or somewhere like that, mm-hmm. and it came to light, the community would run that person
2: out of the state. <laughs> I was going to say, there'd probably be a, an investigation on the, the state level, too. <laughs> probably
0: so. Yeah, tar and feather and uh, run them out on a rail. <laughs> you know. Hey, uh, we talked about it. We kind of got... Got off sidetracked there a little bit, but that's some great points. And I think people ought to be listening to this. And, and it, you know, if you want to make changes in something, you have to do it on a local level. You have mm-hmm. to get involved. And, and basically what we're saying is, look, if you want something to be better at the Virginia Tech level, you need to go into the community in which you live and start doing something on a local level and support those those Little League teams and everything else those JV teams and, and build those programs because that's what feeds programs and makes them successful. Yeah,
1: Yeah. I agree. You know, in certain sports like Virginia tech has gotten really good in soccer, men's and women's. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they've been able to build their lacrosse pro their women's lacrosse program up relatively quickly because they're, they're pretty, they're pretty close to areas that produce a lot of really good players in those, in, in those sports. Um, they're still within, you know, within a six-hour radius around Blacksburg. There's still a lot of good football, but you know, like the seven-five-seven is barely within the the six-hour radius, right? Like, it's half the distance to Charlotte. You can drive to Ohio faster than you can drive to Virginia Beach. That's right. From 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 Blacksburg, Virginia. So, uh, I I think it's easy to say, uh, just go back and do what we did under Beamer. And I agree with that to a certain extent. There are certain things we do need to recognize and, and get back to under Frank Beamer. But I, I think the issue with Virginia tech mainly under Fuente was a player development issue. Um, I mean, you, you look at Hendon hooker and was he all that good at Virginia tech? I mean, uh, but then look how good he is somewhere else after he's developed. And right. uh Trey Turner was a four-star recruit who was pretty much the same player as a senior as he was as a freshman. And, uh, you know, I, I subscribe to Pro Football Focus, and I look at these guys' grades and everything like that, and you just see so many guys who play pretty well for Tech as freshmen, and then they slowly regress throughout their careers. Um, and I think that's the main issue with, with Virginia Tech football the last few years, is not where the players come from. It's what happens to them once they get to the school. And that that's the main thing to me that
0: has to be fixed. Well, let's focus on those players now. We talked a little bit about, uh, you just you know ran down um, a little bit of an idea based on Will's question about where we're going offensively at Virginia Tech. So the big thing is, is stocking the bench, getting those quality players in. So right. uh, a couple of questions for you. One, what does the current crop of players look like? what does the transfer portal do for you and how long is it going to take from a recruitment standpoint to start making the changes that pry would like to see i think
1: sometimes people make the mistake of uh they mistake a lack of uh development for a lack of talent and uh like i'll use the example of trey turner again and and this is not bashing Trey I'm not mad at Trey with this I'm mad at the situation he was in sure you know I thought he was great as a freshman I mean especially the second half of the season he was just dominant but ultimately he stayed the same size his entire career you know he was 187 pounds as a freshman 190 pounds as a senior and he was just kind of the same guy his whole career and you know Dax Holyfield showed a lot as a freshman so you thought he was going to be really good and he was kind of the same as a fourth year player this past year you go up and down the line uh Shamari connor was a really good starter for tech as a sophomore and his performance just slowly declined over over the last two years so do we lack talent or that or was Tech's de- development system totally whacked because if you can come in and play well as a freshman there's no reason you can't be playing well two years later as a junior or three, three years later as a senior. And I'm not saying Virginia Tech doesn't need to upgrade their talent in certain areas, but I do think some people, I think some people are incorrect when they judge Virginia Tech's talent level. I just don't think a lot of the talent was properly developed over the last few years. Good point. Good point.
0: Let's So let's move into this transfer portal question. Uh, so far, what do you think? I think they
1: addressed their main needs on the offensive side of the ball. I think they brought in two quarterbacks, um, both with starting experience at the FBS. Excuse me, the FBS level.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One of them has three years of eligibility left. So if Grant Wells, if Marshall wins the job, you know it, it's. It, I, I, re- I like taking transfer portal guys with multiple years of eligibility left because they can still improve. Right. You know, um, so I, the, I don't get in the business of rooting for one player over another. But, you know, if Jason Brown is the starter for Virginia Tech this year, then he's gone after this year. And then you start over again next year. If Grant Wells uh, is the starter, then he learns this year. He's got the big arm that they, they want in their offense. I think he's a talented player. And then he's still here for another year or two years. If he decides to take the NCAA up on their sixth year offer for, for guys who played during the COVID year. So, you know, he could have three years of starting experience heading into 2023. He could have four years of starting experience heading into 2024 and you build the talent around him. And all of a sudden you've got one of the most experienced quarterbacks in the country. And, uh, so I think it's, I think it's good that they brought both of those guys in because I think competition is healthy. Uh, I think if somebody gets hurt, then you have somebody else who has experience at, at a high level playing. Um, obviously they needed somebody's at wide receiver too. And uh, Jaden Blue was a guy who was very productive earlier in his career at Temple. Um, Temple only played six games his junior year. So his production catch numbers dropped. And then they were a bad team with a bad quarterback this past year. But at his peak, he was a 90 catch guy at Temple when he had a good quarterback. And he's going to step in and, and, and start right away. So uh, I, I think they addressed their needs. Now, they're at the point right now where just, you know, if I just look at the announcements, like this guy's declared for the draft, this guy's on the portal, this guy's announced he's returning for another year. Just the announcements so far right now, They would have about 95 to 97 scholarship players when the season starts, which is not allowed. They're gonna have to drop about 10 or 12 scholarship players between now and when camp opens. So that means right now, you can't bring anybody else in in the portal unless you know for a fact that you're losing a bunch of guys in the future. Now, there's gonna be attrition. There's always, there already has been, but there's gonna be more. Some of it could be, some of it just hasn't been announced yet. Some of it could be some guys are going, I I think for the the strength and conditioning and nutrition and the discipline side of things, now is going to be more strenuous. They're going to be holding guys to a higher standard, holding them more accountable. And some guys who spent the last few years in a program that I don't think held them to a high standard, they're not going to adjust very well to that. And they're going to be gone after this semester. So there's going to be more attrition, just how much we don't know. So I'd be surprised if there wasn't another transfer portal addition or two between now and the, and the start of the season. How many kind of depends on how many guys are part of that mass exodus that it's going to take place between now and August.
0: All right. Let, uh, let me make a point here that Chris Coleman, and you heard it here first, is a, is a guy half full type of uh, glass, half full type of guy, and he has long range vision, for this program. And he's seen something here, Talking about the quarterback and having those extra years, very positive thought. Um, so things are looking up. Now let's talk about uh, the recruiting side of things. How long is it going to take gear two years? I mean, you just said, Hey, you're, you're chocked full uh, of, of players. Maybe you don't have to wait a year or two when it comes down to your recruiting and if you can develop uh, what you've got and use that talent and bring it to its, its peak, then maybe the program hits the pavement running. I,
1: uh, I, I think they're going to sign a good recruiting class this year. Um, I think the, the, the response so far from guys who have visited and met the coaches has been very positive. Um, I, I think they've hired coaches who already have connections in, in the key recruiting areas all the way up from Pennsylvania, West Ohio, all the way down the Southeast. Um, I don't think, I don't think it's going to be an issue. I mean, and for, for as much stick as Fuente got for recruiting, his first three years he signed a top 25 class, which was the same a lot. It's not like Frank Beamer was out there signing top 10 or 15 classes. I mean, Virginia Tech at its peak, no matter whether it's been Frank Beamer or Justin Fuente has signed their average recruiting class is about 25th. Um, So It'll be interesting to see if Brent Pry can improve on that or if that's just that's just who Virginia Tech is in the, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, you don't have to sign top 15 recruiting classes to win a lot of football games. Virginia Tech has a higher recruiting class ranking than Wisconsin every year. Wisconsin knows the type of players who fit their culture. They, they know the type of scheme to run. They know the type of philosophies that is going to bring w- success to Wisconsin football and uh fortunately for them there are a lot of good offensive linemen in that part of the country too um so i, I the, the big thing for virginia Tech, like i said is is the evaluation of what type of program we have to be ha- uh, is first and foremost and i, and I think brent price sold with babcock on on the correct division um you have to have the support staff and the assistant coaching hires to, to make that happen and then you know you have to after that, it's all about player development and buy-in and things like that. And and, uh, I'm not saying recruiting is not important. It is because Virginia Tech is going to have to identify the guys who fit their culture. They're going to have to identify the guys who who are developable. Uh, That's a long word. Maybe I just made it up. I'm not sure. But uh, all coaches say this. They all pay it lip service. They all say, we want to get Virginia Tech guys. We want to get UVA guys. We want to get UNC guys. We want to get Miami guys, blah, blah, blah. Saying stuff like that and, and actually understanding what a Virginia Tech guy is, is two different things. And I, I do think Brent Pry, I think he understands it. We'll see. We'll find out. Time will tell. But I do, I do think he grasps it.
2: So... One quick, uh, football question before we move on to basketballs. So uh, does, uh, does v- West Virginia come into Blacksburg this year, move the needle for you? It does for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, that that's a, that I was, I've been disappointed for a long time that that game hasn't happened. I mean, football is about emotions. It's about passion. It's about hatred, you know, for some people, um, actually don't hate West Virginia. Um, I respect them as a football program, um, but I, I, I understand we need to play them. Like, it's just all those years when UVA wasn't any good and, and Virginia Tech wasn't playing West Virginia at all. Like I remember growing up in the nineties and or growing up on tech football in the nineties. And you look at the schedule every year and you're like, bam, West Virginia, they're, they're a really good team and we play them and we're border rivals. And then there's, there's UVA at the end of the season. And They got a bunch of NFL players on that team, and they're really well coached under George Welsh, and you know that would fire you up to play that level of competition against a fan base that really wanted to beat you. And then Tech stopped playing West Virginia, and there's just not all that many passionate fan bases in the ACC. Like, I think NC State's a good fan base, but they're on the opposite division, and Tech never plays them, and and. Clemson's in the opposite division and Tech hardly ever plays them I mean especially when you look at the coastal division it's just a bunch of fan bases that don't care about football and that's who Virginia Tech has to play every year and UVA got so bad that their fan base checked out I mean they, they were a pretty good football team on generally speaking under Bronco Mendenhall or decent at least I mean he improved them a lot he, he was a solid football coach but you look at their stadium it's still half empty that's how bad they were, that their fan base just, they seem like they've checked out of football forever. And so it, as a fan, either consciously or subconsciously, you you would like to be matched emotionally by the opponent, at least sometimes, you know? And, and I think Virginia Tech basically spent a decade with their main rivals either not playing them or the other fan base just stopped caring about football. And, and I think that, I think that ebbs on a program to a certain extent, like uh, maybe it even kills your drive to a certain extent. Like those years, Virginia Tech limped to a finish towards the end of the season, but still beat UVA. And you're patting yourself on your back because, you know, you extended the streak and made a bowl game at the last second and blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is Mike London was coaching those teams. They were a horribly coached football team because you beat Mike London doesn't mean anything. You need to go out and get better. But the fact that the game's even close should be an embarrassment to you. So, I think the fact that Virginia Tech's main rivals they either weren't playing or the main rival wasn't challenging them, I think it held Virginia Tech back to a certain extent. So, I'm an advocate of playing West Virginia again. I, I just think it's uh, I think I think you need that emotion throughout your season and and. You know as much as much as tech fans dislike north carolina these days that emotion is not returned from the unc fan base when it comes from, uh, when it comes to football certainly not returned from the duke fan base or their crossover opponent boston college or Pitt fans or even I mean, it's just miami fans are miami fans you know sometimes they show up sometimes they don't Georgia Tech fan base is small so virginia tech needs to play west virginia i think i think it would bring out the best in Virginia tech's fan base. If that series started again, I just don't think a lot of the fan base realizes. it.
2: So let's move over to basketball real quick. Uh, This team, I would say, I think it hasn't met expectations to this point. What, what has been the, what do you see as the overall reason this team has kind of failed to meet those expectations so far?
1: I think, uh, I think there's, there, there's, I don't think there's one main reason for it. I, some people like to point to Storm Murphy. Uh, some people like to point to Naheem Aline. I think it's a lot more Aline than Murphy, but overall, I think it's a team issue. Um, you know, I look at Storm Murphy. He's a guy who only scored two points against North Carolina last night, and everybody was like, oh, he's just not athletic enough to play at this level. Well, when he was at Wofford, he played North Carolina twice and scored 15 points against them both times. He took 10 three-pointers in the first meeting and eight three-pointers in the second meeting, so, or six in the second meeting. So he's averaging eight three-point attempts per game against North Carolina and 15 points per game against North Carolina. And then all of a sudden he comes to Virginia Tech and he scores two points and puts up one three-point shot. It's not because Storm Murphy magically got less athletic overnight. It's for some reason, he's just not getting freed up like he was before. If he can go out and score 15 on a consistent basis against North Carolina, we played for Wofford, why can't he do it at Virginia Tech? So to me, that's that's a team issue. and I, I don't know enough about basketball X's and O's to, uh, to be able to say why. But to me, it's just – think they just don't look quite as fluid as I thought they would this year. I think losing Tyrese Radford hurt. I think a bigger issue has been the regression of Naheem Ali who's an extremely streaky shooter. And by streaky, I mean he can shoot 25% for an entire month to six weeks. It's not one or two games here and there. It's a third of the season sometimes, basically. And, uh, you know, he doesn't have a single offensive rebound all year. Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that until I saw that stat today. And so I think that's that's been a big reason for, for the drop-off. And I don't like to pin it on individual people because it's not just – Mahima lean. And I'm not saying I don't think storm has been quite as good as I thought he would be this year, but I think he gets, I don't think he gets enough. I think he gets too much flack from the fan base. Cause like I said, he performed against North Carolina when he was at Wofford. So it's gotta be an issue with this particular Virginia tech team rather than storm himself, right? He didn't mm-hmm. forget how to play basketball. He didn't get less athletic and things like that. So I, I wish in hindsight, that, you know, Virginia Tech has 11 scholarship players. Mike Young did not dip into the portal to replace the guys he lost last year. I think in an, an ideal situation, Nahima Aline would be backing up Hunter Couture at, at the two spot. And we would have a more traditional 6'5 to 6'6 six, six, small forward, uh, the, your bigger wing. Guy who's got more athleticism, a bit better handle, can make a three-pointer, but, you know, also help you on the boards. Um, and I I don't, I don't know if Mike Young just wasn't going to do that no matter what. I mean, if you recall, there was an, there's a situation with Tyrese Rafford over the summer, um, where he had a DUI charge. And then there was another incident where, you know, he had to blow, blow into the thing in your car and it detected alcohol on him then. So nobody knows exactly what happened with Tyrese Rafford. I don't know if he was actually if he had just chose to transfer himself because he wanted to, I don't know if he was, he might've just not been allowed to return to Virginia Tech on the university side of things. But that thing drug out. If I recall, it drug out until late August, basically when school started at LSU. And at that point it's too late to, to replace it. So if you're Mike Young, you don't know what's going to happen there. Cause anybody you're recruiting over the summer, they're going to be like, well, what's going to happen with Tyrese Rafford? Cause if he comes back, that's going to cut into my playing time, but I'm not going to know whether he's coming back or not until August. So it's it's really hard to recruit somebody in the portal when you've got a situation like that going on too. So I don't know enough about that situation to know whether Mike Young just chose to not add anybody at the portal or if those situations really prevented him from doing so. But in hindsight, I wish that's what he had been able to do is to sign an extra player who could play the three spot.
2: This is a critical two game stretch coming up for the Hokies. Uh, They host uh, Miami on Wednesday and then travel to Florida state on Saturday. What's it going to take for the Hokies to get a couple of wins here?
1: Start playing better the last five minutes of games, man. I mean, if if you look at it, except for the Wake Forest game, they've been right there in every game and uh, you just got to start, you got to handle pressure better down the stretch. Um, yeah, they just don't have much room for error. You know, last night I was very concerned at halftime, not because they were losing, because but because, because I thought I thought they gave away five points in the last couple minutes of the first half. Like uh, David Gasan missed a dunk, and in the process of missing the dunk, he held on to the rim and then tried to grab the ball, which is a technical foul. So you cost yourself two points by missing a dunk. You give UNC free one point with a technical foul, and then. The last possession, um, UNC is about to throw up a shot from about 35 feet away. And instead of just letting them probably miss that shot, Naheem Aline fouls the guy and gives him two free throws. So that's, that's five points. Now UNC led by four at halftime. I thought Virginia Tech should have been winning by one. And you're never going to play a mistake-free basketball game. But I don't think this team can win games unless they avoid those critical errors like that. It just, like, directly affects you in terms of uh, the the scoreboard. Um, So you have to start playing a little bit smarter. Um, It's one of those things where, you know, they've been in almost every game late. So, you know, they're capable, but until they start winning some of those games on a consistent basis, how can you pick them to do it,
0: right? Mm -hmm. So one last question, basketball wise, uh, Chris, uh, last time I looked at Joe Lenardi's ESPN bracket, he had Virginia Tech as just on the outside looking in, but with a great shot at getting into the field of 68. Um, I know it's still a little early. We're you know, not even you know near the ACC tournament quite yet. But uh, as things are going right now, just a gut check. Tell me what your thoughts are on them making the, the field of 68. I think it's extremely unlikely. Um, I just uh... – I think they're going to
1: have enough wins. I think the efficiency numbers are going to be there, and that's the frustrating part is Tech's efficiency ratings for most of the season. They've been number two in the ACC. They're an extremely efficient basketball game, basketball team until they get to the last four or five minutes of the game. And then they just – all of a sudden, Kebe Aluma turns in from, from a, one of the best post players in the country to he can't make a shot, and he's dribbling the ball out of bounds and falling on the court, and – you know, Nahima has three turnovers in a row against NC State, and it's just uh they fall apart to a certain extent. And uh they've got to do better at that. But man, they they really have to get hot and to, to make up for their lack of overall wins. And you know, Ken Pomeroy has a luck metric, and it basically it compares a team's efficiency ratings and how they should you you assume that a good efficient team is gonna might split their close games, and for, for Virginia Tech is like bottom ten in the country in in comparison to their efficiency ratings to how they're closing out close games. And it reminds me of their 2005-2016, the year before they made the NCAA tournament with, with uh, Jamon Gordon and Xavier Daudel and Coleman Collins of that group. They lost like ten or twelve ACC games by like four points or less or something like that. And they they actually ranked dead last in Pomeroy's luck metric that year. like every time there was a close game they lost, they were right there. I mean Duke beat them on a half court shot that year, uh, Carolina basically beat them at the buzzer. Uh, it was just tons of tons of losses like that, and it's at some point you have to put your head down and fight your way through that. Um, you worry that it's too late, that they've lost too many of those games at this point. Um, We'll see. I haven't totally given up hope, but I am not expecting it
0: at the same time. <laughs> well, I talked about that that glass half full. Now it's half now empty. It's, it's all even and out. Yep. <laughs> That's because you've been drinking throughout the entire I show. <laughs> <laughs> that explains everything. Hey, uh, all the all the folks who are asking about your appearance and have been checking in, now you know it's You've got a great look at what's going on with Hokies football, a great look at what's going on with Hokies basketball, and there's a lot more. And you'll find it at TechSideline.com. Our thanks to the managing editor of TechSideline, Chris Coleman, for joining us again and being on the show. Thank you, Chris.
1: No problem. Okay. One slight correction. I'm sure. actually no longer the managing editor. Oh, okay. I am the lead analyst.
2: Uh, David,
1: David Cunningham, who we, ha- we hired this past year, is the managing editor. So I can focus more on my own writing now, rather than managing other people's content,
0: which I think adds a lot of value to the site. There you go. Well, they know where they can find you, and that's at techsideline.com. Thanks, Chris. Hey, appreciate it, fellas. <laughs>